You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You have this media company, Impact Theory. The podcast, Impact Theory, is amazing. We're going to talk about it. You have a, a great message about creating impact and how there's essentially no excuses. Anyone can create impact. I want to talk about all of this. How much time do you have, by the way? Dude, let's rock, man. Whatever so, you need. So, because most people's stories now are made up of their excuses first before they get to the point where you're at, where you're kind of saying, okay, now you find what you love and then you work really hard at it and get a growth mindset. Here's the type of story people tell. They say, I'd like to do X, but, like for instance, I'd like to start my own company, but, and then they give a, a whole story. That The words that come out after the but, that's actually their story. Right. How do you how do you get past that butt? Let me ask you for advice. And like, let's say I read, uh, well, let's say I read Sapiens. Okay, he talks right. about the history of the human spe species. What am I gonna What am I gonna take away? What should I do? What am I gonna take away from that? Well, Sabian, Sabians in particular, the whole riff on narrative and how important narrative is and getting, um, and really, if you bring together Sabians and Homo Deus and see how he brings that notion of narrative together and how critical it is. And I remember him talking about- How critical it is for humanity, for right. us to progress as a species. Exactly. But now if you abstract that down to the human level and say, okay, if narrative is that important, if the Crusades are an echo of people telling themselves essentially the same but opposing narratives and you know they were at war for god knows how long um what i found interesting about that was he said if you were growing up in england your church was saying that you know you were doing god's work your parents were telling you when you said you were going to join the crusades that you were doing god's work and they were so proud of you and the woman that you really liked she was you know um turned on by the fact that you were going to fight in the crusade so everything in your environment is giving you all these positive cues and it's all just a narrative so if you go okay narrative's that powerful that it can not only persuade the masses to think in a certain way what can i do with narrative for myself what what is the story i tell myself about myself and if i were to adjust that narrative would it change everything about my life and the answer is absolutely so when you read those books did you change change the narrative about yourself enhance it express it differently like what did you do well so in truth it began to inform what we're doing at impact theory because i already understood narrative at the self level so for me it was an awakening to just how powerful narrative is at the social level and so i've had hints of that with people like joseph campbell um, that really impacted me as a young filmmaker i was like oh my god this makes so much sense like this notion of these universal myths that somehow tap into something that is within us all um, that's super, super interesting. But hearing Yuval talk about it in this whole new way and him really getting me to see how there are narratives, quote unquote, that are functioning in society today that even I was taking for granted. And I like to think I'm relatively aware of the, the sort of social um, 
thing that is the story we're telling each other about our culture or our country and all of that stuff. But he really took it to a whole new level. So that just made me more confident about the direction that we're going in terms of trying to tell stories that will ultimately impact the fabric of culture by giving people at, at an individual level a new narrative. I mean, and it's not just the story, it's the delivery also, right? So like on your podcast or in your videos, uh, uh, you have a specific way of delivery. You're not just sort of sitting there saying, okay, you now you need to execute a little better. Like you're like, you need to go out there and execute. You know, you have a very kind of um, motivational speaker way of expressing yourself without going too far that it seems like motivational snake oil. You know, so I think you've thought about delivery and storytelling. Yeah, for sure. It's funny. So I had to give myself permission to perform. So there's one piece of content that is just outright performance for me is what we call impact quotes. So I'll take two quotes that have really um, had impact on me and I'll sort of tie them together in uh, an impromptu speech. I don't script them. I just do them off the fly. Um, and that I found to really hit people. I had to let myself just let go. Like give me, give me an example. Like give you an example of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, like actually oh, the perform right now? No, no, no. The, like quotes that you're- Oh, that I've merging. used? Yeah. Oh, God, I don't have a lot of them memorized. But so it takes- Because I've seen you do it. Like you take an Einstein quote, you'll take a yeah. quote from whoever and- Perfect, so I'll give you- You'll a, build your stories around around those quotes. And that kind of um, almost provides many chapters in your presentations. So people, yeah. so, so the idea is, I'm imagining, people can't sit still for, for nine minutes and- listen listen for more than nine minutes to the same story. So it gives you a nice ways to break a, a story. That, and I try to find ones that advance the idea. So if you've got, you know, um, take the pass, path less traveled, right? So is there another quote that I could pair with that that maybe is a little bit different than what most people are thinking? Um, you know, so whatever the, the standard response to that quote is, you know, what can we give that, that pairs nicely like um, you know, in a meal where you're pairing two sort of not opposite or clashing, but they're unique flavors. It's not two things about choosing, you know, the unique path. Um, so it might be something about choosing a unique path and not going in the direction that everybody else is going, um, paired with uh, a quote from, you know, a military leader who's like, if uh, you can't find a way, make one, you know, the Hannibal, the famous quote that he was talking about getting elephants over the Alps, I'll either find a way or make one. So, okay, so that's interesting. So uh, take the path less traveled, but if you, if, if you can't see a path that's less traveled, if everybody's just going down the same highway, then figure out how to build your own your own highway. Exactly. And so as I'm performing it, it might start with, I, maybe I want to hit a beautiful note on that first quote, right? That there's a life out there for you that is unlike anybody else's life. And it really is going to be a more difficult path and you're going to have to walk alone. And I know that there is fear in that, but there's also the opportunity to create something new, to create something beautiful, something that will be so uniquely you that you get that joy of carving your own path, defining yourself as something different than everybody else and not just being an echo of what's come before you, but really truly silencing out the noise and figuring who you are and leaving those footsteps for people and that becoming somewhat of a legacy. But the reality that you have to face 
is that it's all up to you. And at the end of the day, nobody is coming to save you. You've got to figure that out. You've got to be prepared to make that path. And when you come to the brambles, the question is, what are you gonna do when you hit the brambles? Are you gonna stop? Are you gonna take the excuse? The very valid excuse, by the way, and that's the worst thing about excuses, is everyone is gonna say, when you hit the brambles, we get it. We understand why you stopped. But if you wanna get where you wanna go, You've got to push through. You've got to take the cuts. You've got to take the nicks. You've got to be willing to bleed to get what you want out of life. You know, this so great delivery because it got me thinking about other podcasts and posts and so on that that, that you've done. It reminded me of um, this podcast with this real estate guy who um, started off with nothing, uh, had a, bought a building with nine rooms, would live in one room while he was fixing it up, then rent it out, then move into the next room, fix it up. I, I forgot what his name was. Dean Graciosi. Yeah, yeah. Very smart guy. And what I really appreciated in his one, which reminds me of what you just said, he said, um, you know, something to the effect of, here's the type of story people tell. They say, I'd like to do X, but, like for instance, I'd like to start my own company, but, and then they give a, a whole story. That the words that come out after the but, that's actually their story. Right. And it's not the I'd like to because that's not part of their story yet. They haven't done it. The but is but I've got a mortgage and I got to pay for three kids' healthcare and I got to get promoted in my job or there's no other jobs around here. Uh, uh, it, it reminds me of that where uh, kind of finding finding your story so that you. So you can figure out what your excuses are. It's like that was like a nice little trick to find out what your excuses are. Mm. And, and it, most people's stories now are made up of their excuses first before they get to the point where you're at, where you're kind of saying, "Okay, now you find what you love, and then you work really hard at it and get a growth mindset." Most people are, "I'd like to be better at golf, but I just failed at it on my very first day, so I suck at it." Right. Uh, how do you how do you get past that butt? Yeah, that that comes down to some core beliefs. And that's what I was talking about earlier with, you have to get to the nature of things. So the reason that I'm always telling people that humans are the ultimate adaptation machine is humans lead with belief. So you're never going to take an action to which you don't believe you will ever get a positive result. Uh, that just makes sense. But if you believe, oh, that nothing special has to be true of me. I just have to accept that I am a human and humans are adaptation machines. That's literally what we are designed to do. So just because I'm not good at something today doesn't mean I can't be good at it tomorrow. And that was that first belief that allowed me to start down the path of really developing a growth mindset, building out a set of skills that was valuable, was I believed that my efforts would be rewarded just by the fact that I'm a human and that's how the human brain works. You do something over and over and over and you get better at it. You certainly get more efficient. And then if you can train well, then you can really improve. So because I simply believe that that is true of the human animal, I don't have to think anything unique about me. It just, that's the way this works. And so if I put the energy in, I'm going to get a result. So what's, what's a, I wanted to think of other books where, and find out what your takeaway was. Like, what are some of your favorite books this past year? Ooh, this past year. And, well, and there's no pressure on this. Like, yeah, the, Harry Potter. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> um, no, I read almost exclusively nonfiction. Um, I'm just trying to. Th I'm really bad at like popping off on what books I just read. But uh, Yuval was on the show recently, so I had read um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century and something Great that book. was 
really meaningful to me is that science fiction writers have a moral obligation to present a future worth moving towards. And I thought that really hit me hard as somebody that um, is going into the world of narrative storytelling and, you know, was literally, as I read that, was writing a science fiction story. And I was like, okay, this is, this is actually pretty important to remember. Um, that was really great. Um, I've read several books, including Dean Graciosi's book, um, Millionaire Success Habits, about, you know, the way to think and how to act, um, consistency, uh, you know, little things like that, that really consistency is one of the most empowering, important things that you can do. And so, yeah. You know, you know why I haven't read uh, his book? And I probably should, because I enjoyed your podcast with him so much. But just the name, Millionaire Secrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like, all right, here's a millionaire telling what he did. How do I know he's not to, to use another book, Fooled by Randomness, right. where <laughs> he, you know, he got lucky doing his particular millionaire secrets, but somebody doing their millionaire secrets ended up a zero heir. Right. So, uh, you know, whereas he, that person could have gotten lucky and written millionaire secrets. Yeah, it's, it's something that I ask myself a lot, right? So is this survivorship bias? Like, are we just looking at the ones that made it and they're, they think that because they made it, oh, this is the path to making it? Um, but I think that there are a few things that people can do that, that just go beyond that. And that is to look at whether or not you're getting the result that you want and then to do a process of iteration. So if you want to find a path to success, first, I will tell you that the struggle is guaranteed. The success is not. So you should love what you do. Let's start with that. So being able to build in desire to love something, to enjoy the process, to build your identity around being a learner, somebody that's trying to actuate their potential. So I think humans have an inordinate amount of potential, but very few humans actually do something with that potential. Um, so that's a big part of it. But then the other is, okay, let's say you're building a protein bar company or a media company. You're going to fail and you're going to fail more than you're going to succeed. So to give you an idea, when we started Impact Theory, the step one was gonna be to put myself in a creative endeavor where I could survive financially a one in 20 hit rate. So if you're making a comic book, movies, TV shows, whatever, assume 19 out of 20 fail. Okay, cool. So that's why we started in comics because I can literally afford to fail 20 times and have only one of them be a hit. So what I did was I said, who's done well in comics? And I found the former CEO of DC Comics and I spent two days with him and I had one question. I said, Paul, we're here to answer exactly one question. Why am I going to fail? And if you start with that instead of tell me how to succeed, which is what most people do, you can start to eliminate some of the obvious paths or at least understand why they're dangerous paths, why most people fail as they go down those. And looking at that, what I'm trying to do is rapidly iterate through all the possibilities because before you, and this is every entrepreneur's nightmare, most people drown in opportunity. There's a thousand doors before you. 999 of them aren't going to work. So the question is, how do you find the one that's going to work? And the answer is you go through one, did this work? No, back up, next one, back up, next one, over and over and over. And the goal is just to, as you've heard, and I'm sure said a thousand times, you wanna fail rapidly. So the question is, what are you learning when you're failing? What, what, are the, what, did, what was Paul's last name? Well, Paul who? Uh, Levitz. Okay, well, what did Paul say about how, how to fail at comics? Oh, how to fail at comics. His answer is basically get into comics and you're almost certainly going to fail. Yeah, because if you think about it, and I'm a huge comic book fan, in terms of Marvel and DC and like the big name franchises, the only stories we all know in this room 
in common, like the only real intersection between all of us are the 1960s Marvel and DC stories. Now, Jay might know more of like the latest 90s ones. Tom might know more of, you know, Spawn, I'm making it up or whatever. But it, the intersection is we all know Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Superman, Batman from that period of the 60s and 70s. We all know Frank Miller of all he's done and all his storytelling and Jack Kirby and so on. But our, as far as the intersection, it's probably not bigger than that. Yeah. And that's, and everybody, and but there's been huge attempts, right? There's been huge, huge attempts at trying to succeed in comics. And yet we're still, the only thing we all know together is the 19, a few 1960s stories. Yep. So how yeah. do you, so it doesn't seem like you can succeed. Were you ready for the answer? Yes. All right. So this is what we're going to do. And I invite anybody out there to copy this model and try to beat us. It'll be good to have uh, some competition. So the reality is that if you're getting into the game of comics to create the next iconic comics brand that lives as a cinematic universe, um, I won't say it's impossible, uh, but I will say that is not at all what we're trying to do because that strikes me as so brutally difficult mm. as to not even be worth trying because one, you have to survive for decades before it even becomes relevant. So, um, you know, right now Disney's trading on the fact that this, you know, then little known company Marvel got in business and was creating all this stuff that for decades, multiple decades was essentially worthless. And at one point, obviously they were in receivership and they pulled themselves back out of bankruptcy. But it was like, that wasn't too long ago that they were in dire straits. We're talking about the 90s. So Yeah, I remember it was it was specifically 1999, I think they declared bankruptcy. Yep. So that and those are the guys with the iconic brands, right? So that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is recognize the nature of things, right? Get to the nature of things. How does this industry actually work? And the way that the film and TV industry works, which is where the money is generated, because that kicks off something into pop culture, which then has multiple revenue streams. So you can get your um, Netflix deal if you're the Duffer Brothers and you're doing um, Stranger Things, but then you also get the t-shirts and the hats and the mugs and all that. So. The big thing, if you're a comic book, you have to be translated into some other medium. Otherwise, there is essentially no money in it. To give you an idea, um, the biggest comic book this month will do about 150,000 units worldwide. So it's literally nothing. There's not even anything to talk about or fight over. There's just no money in which it. Which is so different from, let's say, a 1970s X-Men, which would do two million every two weeks. Yeah, or even you know, bump it up to the early 90s and you're looking at Jim Lee setting the record with eight million units of a single book, a single issue. So there was a heyday, that day is over. And now we're dealing with what is the current nature of things? So the current nature of things is creating a comic book is about building IP and building community. That's it, stop trying to make money at it. So you're gonna build IP, you're gonna create an interesting world with interesting characters that are fully fleshed out. They are drawn. There are pages and pages and pages of drawings. It's going to be such a compelling story that people want to read it, that they're willing to fight through the asinine delivery system that currently exists in comics, which is so ridiculous that I almost can't see straight. And it's why kids don't go into it because the thought of it for someone who's like 16 to 24 of having to go to the same store, you have to leave your house every week to buy something. It's absurd. So they're never going to attract younger people. That, that day is just dead as disco. So now you're like traditional comic book audience are 35 to 55 and they're dying, literally. So it's just like, it doesn't make any sense, but it's incredibly powerful 
to galvanize these insanely creative, talented people who want to express themselves visually. And so unlike a film where you have to convince somebody to give you $100 million if you want to do an alien space battle, you can draw it for the same price that you could draw my dinner with Andre. So it's this really unique, creatively satisfying endeavor where you get some of the world's most talented visual artists, they, they come to it, and you galvanize them around a story, and what they give you is a piece of solid gold. It is your narrative with your characters in a visual medium that people can touch, they can turn the pages, they can react to the colors, the dialogue, everything. And I can go hand it for 30 cents. I can give you a full comic book. And if you're a producer and you're flipping through that and you see that my small little team has put all that energy into creating this world, which is very visual, you don't have to imagine it, you're literally looking at it. And then I say, your job is to figure out whether that, you being the producer, whether that translates into film or TV. But it's so much easier because you're holding it, you're looking at it, you get the characters, you have a feel for them. So giving them something tactile is everything. And if you can survive the period where you've got, first of all, the one in 20 hit rate, and then you've got the three years to the screen. If you can survive that, and let's say that it takes you five years to get your one finally at a 20 hit rate, and then it's another three years before you're up on the silver screen, are you gonna be able to bridge that gap? And the answer for virtually every company that gets into it is no. Because I knew going into this that we're never gonna make money off comics. It's all gonna be about the translation. I have to make sure that I'm break even without ever selling a single comic. So. That's our mission. Now, the good news for us is that we have the nonfiction side of the business, which is trending towards profitability. And I think it will be go well beyond profitability, even having to carry the dead weight of the comics around its neck. Without that, we'd already be profitable. So that for us is the model. You just have to understand the nature of a comic book, which is the creation of intellectual property and the building of a community and nothing more. It's interesting because it's, it's like, Whenever you compare media numbers now to media numbers X number of years ago, and X can be any number basically, uh, it's it's clear that every medium is uh, you know focused on small niches and communities now. If you if I were to ask you what's a breakout hit on Netflix, you know one of the obvious answers might be Stranger Things, but Stranger Things is probably one twentieth the viewership of, let's say, a hit show in the 70s or 80s. Right. So I don't know. They don't release their numbers. I don't know, but that's just right, my guess. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you actually know the numbers of Strangely? No, no. So, they're never going to. But okay, but it. you even take like uh, the, the top show of the week right now might be like a Law & Order thing with 8 million viewers, whereas the top uh, broadcast show from 20 years ago might have had 20 or 30 million viewers. So just yeah. everything kind of trends down and is very... And I think that happens in every medium. So with books, with TV with comic books and I think having a respect for that trend and and building a business model around it that might work because maybe all it's probably hard to believe that all content is dead because you can't go it's hard because content is king because as you pointed out you know storytelling and narrative is 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 so important to us as humans but but understanding this trend of every form of media being very niche focused now, I think is critical for a business model to survive. And so do you see that happening with even your impact theory podcasts and, and so on? Yeah, I think you have to be really clear about who you're serving. Uh, you need to have a very clear voice, a very clear value proposition. Um, but I think that if you're delivering real results, the 
the number of people that you can touch is is a lot bigger. You never start there. You always want to start hyper niche. Um, but just like with Quest, it was you started hyper niche. And then as we grew and grew and grew, you started reaching more and more of a mainstream audience. I, I certainly hope the same is true for what we're doing with the podcast. I don't think it ever will be with the delivery mechanism of the comic book, but certainly going into more mass film and television, um, it's it at least is a delivery mechanism for narrative. It's far more uh, broad. Yeah, and I think I think the nineteen out of twenty or the the one out of twenty uh, ratio is really important. And, and and also as incorporating that into the business model, you have to be able to stay in the game. Right. So so because as you're doing as you're building towards that one out of twenty, kind of at the same time, you're building relationships with the people who you're eventually going to sell properties to. And how do you how do you make how do you build those relationships early on without thinking, oh my gosh, it's this guy again, his comics suck. Uh get get Disney on the phone. I don't want to talk to Tom anymore. Right. So that uh that is a and, great and by the way, I don't ask this for the from the point of view of oh, this will help someone pitch a TV show. This is true for anything. Everybody starts off with nothing and has to call somebody who can give them something. Right, for sure. And so this is where I really want people to be real and not bitch. And this is where I find that people just shut down and they complain about the game being rigged and all of that stuff. So I had a problem. I'm terrible at networking. Absolutely terrible. It goes You're, against- you're not, as everyone here will test, you're not worse than me at networking. <laughs> That that may be true. I, I was late to this podcast. Networking mistake number one. I don't return. How many times did you write me before Steve returned okay, the email? Fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, I I am not as bad. You're right. I forgot how hard. And we I had would to, like, say to myself, Kamal over here would say, "No, write back Tom Billion." And I'm like, "Oh shoot, I have to." But now I've been rude. I I can't do it. <laughs> like, and then I'm just. I always get I'm so bad at it. Give me advice. Oh man, you're asking for advice from the wrong person. But here's what I'm trying to do. So, but if I'm a hundredth, if I'm ranked a hundredth out of a hundred, and you're ranked 99th out of a hundred, you can at least. How do I be 98 or 99? Right, so <laughs> I'll get you there. All right. So here's things that I'm employing. So first of all, I'm always looking for how can what I'm working on actually be beneficial to that person. So rather than try to jam it down their throat, if it's not the right move, even if it's somebody that could really help me, I don't make a play. I don't make an ask. I just try okay. to. I've done that and I've recommended that. And in fact, by the way, on Impact Theory, <laughs> watching your podcast, there's a lot of overlap, of course, I'm sure as you know, between what you're saying and what your guests are saying and what my guests are saying, because often they're the same guests. Right. And so, and, I, and, and I'm assuming you, you've read some of my stuff or maybe you've read Choose Yourself. Like we have a lot of overlap in what we're saying. And, I, and, and my basic networking story is figure out their agenda give them 10 ideas for their agenda and have zero ask. Right. So I think that is the that is the one that and asking permission on both sides before I introduce people. Mm. Those are my only two networking techniques. Those are both extraordinarily good techniques. Um to add to that, I will say that I always play the long game with that. So I don't go into an exchange with somebody thinking, "Oh, one day they might be helpful." I just go into the exchange and try to see if um, we're going to enjoy spending time together if there's a legitimate connection. Um, and then being fun to be around is just a big part of it, right? You know, that reminds me, do you ever watch um, the HBO show Crashing? 
No, I've never even heard of it. So, so just because uh, yeah, you've never heard of it because there's like 3,000 shows on TV now, but it's uh, Judd Apatow produced and it's about uh, a comedian finding his voice and trying to get better and better and better. It's about, ultimately it's about self-improvement, but in the, you know, Judd Apatow is obsessed with comedy. And at one point, Pete Holmes, the star, asks Whitney Cummings, a famous comedian playing herself, how do you be a star? And she says, I can't, you can't do it. I can't give you advice. And he says, no, please just tell me anything. How do you be a star like you? And Whitney Cummings said, the star is the person in the room everybody wants to be friends with. So, which is similar to what you just said. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about that. Um, and unfortunately, getting to the point where other people want to be your friend is... Um, can be so icky. And when people are aiming for that, it just gets gross really fast. So it's you really have to find a way to just, and this is a phrase I love using. I know I used it earlier, but just be rad, like do rad shit for people. Like that's it. Like try to connect, be fast to smile, like find something interesting about that person. Uh, the I'm sure you've heard this quote. If you want to be interesting, be interested, right? Like using your, it, it isn't an accident that the way that I um, overcame the fact that I didn't have access to people in powerful positions that could ultimately help me build what I want to build, um, I did an interview show, which gave me the opportunity to honor them, to show them that I know them, that I value them, I value what they have to offer, that I want to give them a platform to bring that out. And we try to make sure that we're, you know, treating people just absolutely top class from the moment they walk in the door. That we want them to walk away saying this is the best media experience I've ever had. So Ugh, I blew it. I was late. <laughs> uh, what? Could, well, we had we bought your the quest. You bars. did. That's huge. <laughs> so Very, I, that's, that's Steve's. Good, that's Steve's good move number one. He's a great producer. Uh, I'm always gonna fail at that. Uh, I try though. But, but here, here's one thing that you're doing incredibly well, which is to show that you're interested in me. And so by doing that, of course, oh, well, well, well you know, thank you for asking me that or thank you for knowing that and taking me down that path is actually really interesting. And the thing that I will walk away from this interview saying is one, you're completely present. So I don't know how much listeners can really tell. I'm sure over enough they get it like because you go in really unique places because you're really just right here actually asking what you want to know. Um, but I'll walk away with that, like that you took me to places that I don't normally go. So this is unlike any interview I've ever done, which I'm always super excited because then I can push it and promote it and be like, no, 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 you you have not heard me answer these questions before because I've never been asked these questions before. Um, so that like you've honored me in that way, right? So that's that's huge. And then doing things. Oh, I, I, I do feel relief now a little bit. No, no, I didn't have sure. the whole. I didn't have a Tom Bilyeu statue here and like that's, that's some cheerleaders. Very okay. And, so. But one, another thing that you did really well, which is interesting, and I'm going to steal this from you guys, is you had a bunch of people here from your quote unquote tribe, and we're just introducing them around. And, and that was really neat to see the kind of people that you resonate with and that resonate with you and that are all here and that are, you know, just off camera with us filming right now. And it's cool. It's like a neat vibe to have that many different people. Um, and, and while we don't do that necessarily intentionally around the guest, we do like, we try to really have a communal, almost family feel. Uh, so when people come on to shoot, they're going to meet a lot of people on the team. The team will know something about them and greet them very warmly. Um, so just try to invite them into what is a real vibe for us. It's not like when you leave it, you know, turns into a shit show. It's like people that we bring on are legitimately like that. 
Um, but getting to see people in that sort of intimate uh, familial setting is really cool. No, we like to uh, basically make a podcast like a, a party. Mm. <laughs> this is where the party's at. So, uh, and you're invited. You were, you were invited today. And of course, you're always invited. So, um, but, uh, uh, you know, on your podcast, I also find, I find a lot of your, your choice of guests really interesting. Like some, some guests, I feel like there, there's a, there's kind of a podcast subculture. So we all correctly, I think, go on each other's podcast because like any scene that's developing, you sort of grow up as a scene. Podcast mm -hmm. is still in its younger days and early podcasters, which even if you start one today, you're an early podcaster. We're going to grow up as a scene and the people who stick it out and work hard at it will stay in that scene and we'll all know each other. Mm -hmm. um, but I, there was one podcast you did recently um, that I loved because I love this guy on YouTube, uh, Nerd Writer One. Yeah, uh, Evan Pushak. Yeah, so you know, and that, and I was real, I was thinking about that one because I did not think of asking him on my podcast. So I was going through your thought process when thinking about him. And I even, even before I listened to the podcast, I pulled up some of my favorite videos by him. I showed my, my girlfriend, this is, this was, this is why this guy Nerdwriter one so great. And, uh, he's so thoughtful in the way he analyzes you know, pieces of content or different media or events or whatever. He he seems so knowledgeable as if he, as if he's a native of of each medium that he's analyzing. When he's not, he's just really smart at it. Like, what do, what do you think his magic power is? That's a great question. So I think that depth is probably what really has made Evan extraordinary. So he'll spend five days like researching something and circling around it before he actually sits down to write it. And by going deep and by really considering himself a philosopher, mm. he's coming at it from that perspective of really trying to make the pieces connect, of making sure that he knows what all the pieces are by putting things in a grander context. And then by not getting lost in say the politics of something, but rather pulling back out to the layer of philosophy and saying, you know, what, what is being revealed of the human condition in this thing, whether that thing is a movie or whatever. And I think he does it so organically. Like for instance, take his video analyzing Louis CK's monopoly joke. Uh, he, he, he breaks it down almost line by line. He has all the clips of it, but then clips of interviews, Chris Rock did, Louis CK did, Jerry Seinfeld did. And he's able to do it so organically, you could see it's not like he's pandering at all for uh, downloads or, or viewers. He's got 3 million views on it because 3 million people wanted to see how he analyzed it. Like right. they trust him. He's built up trust with his viewership that when he takes on a topic, like you say, he's going to think really deeply about it. He's going to take it to a level. Uh, nobody's, you know, the, the, the not only the path least, the path least taken, but, you know, he's going to build his own path to it. And and he he does it so well. He was a good choice for a podcast guest because he's really achieved excellence in a unique way in a new medium, YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, where you can't do what he does on television. You can't do what he does on a podcast. 
you really can't do it on any other medium except YouTube. Yeah. And YouTubers mostly don't do it because YouTubers usually try to make themselves the stars and he's more being analytical and philosophical, like mm -hmm. you say. Like he doesn't even appear on that video right. and he gets three million views. Yeah, he he's really extraordinary. How many how many podcasts now have you done at Impact Theory? Um, so first we were doing it under the banner of Inside Quest and we did about 85 there. And I think we just crossed like 90 or 95 at, um, inside or yeah, at impact theory. So, um, what's that put us just shy of 200. And, you know, you've been obviously dominating on multiple social media at the same time. It's sort of like all of a sudden, and I'm sure this was your goal. All of a sudden, no matter where someone looks, Tom Bilyeu's in the way. You got to go through his content or someone's quoting your content or it's there. You've kind of created this per pervasive like wall of sound presence across uh, social media. So was that your strategy? Or how are you going about creating this media company? And so obviously you have a, a message and a mission, which we can get to, but now we're meta analyzing it. How, what's your strategy for being everywhere? So hashtag steal this content. So we had a decision to make early on. If somebody's ripping off our content, do we stop them? And I said, absolutely not. If we really believe in the message, then we should want the message to get broadcast as far as humanly possible. Um, and then also that's going to introduce the most people to us and to the ideas and allow us to bring more people into our ecosystem. So the one thing, the one mandate I had was the set has to be a very particular color blue because it was the one thing that, unless they desaturated all the way to black and white, you just can't get rid of. And so I knew the set would become iconic. And so- Is that true? Is that like some color theory thing? Yeah, yeah. No, that was, trust me, There, have, I've had many a uh, bordering on argument about how particular I am about that color. You are so full of shit with your 990 on your SATs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're a smart guy. But all you have to do is read about color theory. It's not like you have to be like exceptionally Who bright. Who picks up a book on color theory? <laughs> oh, I'm gonna figure out what color should the background be so it doesn't get saturated no matter what kind of camera. Like <laughs> who hilarious. does that? <laughs> Dude, I hey, I try to accept that I have to learn more than I know now. So here's my belief in life. Your current skill set is already taking you as far as it's gonna take you. Mm. And so if you wanna go farther, you've gotta get new skills. So who picks up, picks up a book on color theory? Probably nobody, certainly not me. But when I'm reading a book about something else, the way the brain works or whatever, and somebody says, or this, it actually probably came out in something like the 22 Immutable Laws of Branding, which I know you've read that. Great book. So I'm sure it was in that. And they were talking about, because I think that's the book that breaks down like John Deere took green and Coca-Cola took red. And like, as you're doing your company, make sure you pick a color that you can own. In fact, this is exactly what happened. So I'm reading that book and I'm thinking, wow, that's like super smart. Then I don't remember if it was also in that book or somewhere else. I read that blue hits your retina in a certain way and it, is considered the most creative color. And I thought, okay, I want, I don't wanna be red, which is like danger, alert, aggression. I want something that is creative. I want something that can be um, eye-catching and inspire like beauty in somebody. So blue, but if you wanna own blue, good luck owning like baby blue, good luck owning sky blue, like they've been played out. So there's a very particular color that I lovingly call impact theory blue. Um, like, how did you? So, like, you you invented a color. Like, how did you invent a color? Did you like, like, that's a bit of a stretch. Did but. you sort of like just kind of slowly go through uh, some sort of spectrum thing and see if it 
I don't know. Is there it, like it was a, a little more accidental than that. So we were designing a piece of packaging, and in the design, there was just this blue that I thought was so beautiful. And I just went on a tirade, and I'm like, "That's our blue. It's got to be that." Like, and I started buying any shirt, shoe, anything that was in that like near that color. And I was like, "This is our color. We have to get it right because it's a, a shade of blue that we can come to own." And the most perfect representation of it is the set. And so that has just been reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. And so yesterday somebody came up to me and said, Tom, I love your channel, be inspired. And it's not my channel, but they use my content a lot. And so the person is used to seeing me, they're used to seeing my set. And so if they use me or they use one of my guests, it's they're reinforcing my brand over and over and yeah, over. Yeah, because it's not any one, it's not any one product or or medium. It's it's Impact theory right now, and maybe this is what you dealt with at Quest early on. Impact theory is is you, and I think right. correctly so. It should be at this point you, uh, and maybe it should be that way forever. Who knows? But uh, uh, it doesn't matter where they see you or encounter you. They just remember, oh, that's that guy Tom Billu again. I was, you know, before I was showing my girlfriend one of your podcasts this morning. And she's like, oh, that's so funny. I just saw him two days ago on Facebook uh, talking with, she said, I forget her name, about toxic people. Mm. And she had a takeaway from that one, which is interesting how you kind of uh, encourage the takeaway in each one of your, um, let's call them products or output. Uh, you know, everybody knows don't stay around toxic people. That's mm. almost sort of obvious and cliche in the self-help world. But there was an interesting thing your guest said, which I did not see this video, but my girlfriend was telling me her takeaway. The interesting thing was, is that the maybes are the hard ones. So the people you don't know if if they're your friends, if you should have lunch with them, you, you're not quite sure yet if they give you energy or drain energy. These are the true toxic people who are dangerous. Right. And... Uh, you know, did I get it right? Her, her 100%. Yeah, frenemies. So it's Vanessa Van Edwards, amazing, amazing human being, um, author, wonderful insights. And yeah, that whole notion that frenemies are the ones that that really hurt because they give you the sense you have to look over your shoulder. They can draw you in close enough to, you know, to really get under your skin and, and do damage. How did you find her? Like, so you might like the way I often find guests for this podcast is that I get insanely curious about what they're doing and uh, this is like almost the introvert's way to to talk to them yeah. so how, how did you like encounter her like how did you find her so i have an extraordinary team of people that helped me put on the show and christopher who you and i spoke briefly about is the person um booking the show um, or maybe I was talking to Steve about that. Um, but Christopher books the show. And so he and the showrunner, Courtney, will put together a bunch of people and they'll pitch me and then I'll dive in and see who really like sparks something with me. And then I'll green light from that. Uh, but it really does start with them. So I'm sure it was Christopher that presented um, her to me. A clip is usually where it starts. And I'll watch a clip and say, all right, this this really could be something. And then I'll read their books and all that. Do you find, do you find that the guest 
drives views or are your viewers watching impact theory because they want to see who you've come up with and what your takeaway is going to be and so on we is, get is it more guest driven or is it you driven um it's well definitely ultimately more guest driven like for well i'll say it's more content driven so if a guest says something that really pops with people then we can get outside of our normal scope so if somebody comes on my show you can sort of assume they'll do somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand views on youtube um but every now and then we get a guest to do a million, two million. Uh, we'll get clips of theirs on Facebook, do 20 million, 30 million. Um, so that comes down to just that one thing that they're saying about parenting or frenemies or, you know, about toughening up or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, that'll pop off. And one of my guests, um, Simon Sinek, did that whole riff about millennials, did 350 million views. So, yeah, absolutely bananas. What did he say about millennials? Basically that, you know, it's not fair to just call them entitled when there's this whole culture that we built around them that they're essentially a product of. And there are amazing people in that generation. And if you can basically get out of the loop of bitching about it and really just look at what caused it and what can we do with it now that it's here, then you know we can really transcend something and connect and see that what they want is purpose and meaning and that that's a beautiful thing. So, so it's far so, more eloquent than that. But so out of all the so obviously you've, you're you're getting take takeaways from every podcast you do. Uh, you've done two hundred of them. You've met some of the most amazing people in the world. Uh, what's how is it improved? You're not a journalist, so you're not like reporting on what they do. You're talking to them because you're personally interested. What's how has your life changed for the better by talking to all of these people? Uh, that's super easy. So for me, one, researching them a lot of the time is even more profound than the interviewing them. So the fact that I have a reason to spend 12 hours diving into the world, reading the books that they've written, watching every video and interview that they've done, um, that that has truly been transformative. So that that's a the biggest, most consistent part of my own personal learning is that I spend on an average weekly, I'll spend probably about 12 hours just going deep into one person's world that has done something extraordinary and has something extraordinary to offer and teach. So I'm in constant learning mode around that. But then even beyond that, a big part of it is it's meeting people that I hope that I can have an ongoing relationship with of one kind or another. Um, the easiest example of that, of course, is Steve Aoki. So Steve Aoki comes on the show, is somebody that I really responded to, the way that he thinks and sees the world. And as I got to know him, realized that he planned to cryogenically freeze himself. And so when I met him, I pitched him a story about a comic book that was um, revolving around this mysterious man who had the ability to bring people back from the dead. And what would that look like if technology were both outlawed and incredibly powerful. And so um, pitched him that idea. We ended up workshopping it together and created what is now called Neon Future, um, which is our first comic book, which were already in loose developments, I think is the only um, truthful way to say it, but loosely working with um, a producer to get it turned into a TV show right now. Um, so that you know started as a, an interview. So it's, so like you reached out to Stevie Okay, he came on your podcast. Mm -hmm. Did you riff on the idea in the podcast itself no, or you called no, them no. later? It was, so yeah, I, I say to everybody that I interview, you're now alumni and alumni is very meaningful to us. So if there's ever anything that we can do, oh, I um, love that we word. will do. So we make our home available to people if they want to throw a function. Um, we've had guests take us up on that. 
Um, anything we can do to promote their upcoming projects, we will do that. Um, so anything that we can do to stay in contact to show that we really want to help them be successful. So whether or not it's advantageous for us, you know, I mean, going back to networking, just really trying to do rad stuff for them. Um, that's been huge. So Steve and I just developed an ongoing relationship that it's probably about two years after I interviewed him before we started the project. And now you're here for Comic-Con with Steve Aoki. Exactly. And what do you guys hope to do here? So really just make the book a splash. I think the book is really good. I think it stands artistically and just from a story perspective, it stands with the biggest stuff from Marvel and DC. I think people are going to be shocked at what we were able to put together as a first-time publisher um, and just want to start making noise. So I would think his huge audience, with his huge audience behind almost anything he does, uh, you would easily get at least a Netflix to throw or Hulu or whoever to throw dollars at you. I mean, Netflix and Amazon, what are they spending 13 billion each on uh, original programming this year? That's the hope. <laughs> so we'll see, but yeah. Well, uh, Tom, I hope we can, I hope you can come on the podcast again at some oh, point. Dude, How often are you in New York? Anytime. I'm probably here four or five times a year. I'm in LA uh, in early December. Beautiful. Am I going on your podcast? Absolutely. We're going to have a party there? <laughs> we are going to have a party there, and you're invited, my friend. Excellent. So so Tom Bilyeu, founder of Quest Nutrition, which is, you know, became a billion-dollar company, uh, uh, then has now started Impact Theory. You've got to really just watch all his podcasts. Like, we didn't even really go over your your 20 five rules of of impacting but i think we kind of covered a lot of the concepts so, yeah, for sure. so but i'll encourage people to go to your website what's the url impacttheory.com impact theory oh so something like theory. and on there is the 25 rules they're they're great they're interesting the podcast you 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 spend a lot of time finding different ways to express these 25 rules you have great guests on i'm fascinated by so many of the guests and i hope I don't uh, blow with the networking and lose touch with you. So <laughs> thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It was amazing. Thank you. Thanks. It's fun. Dude, yeah, it was awesome. Right really yeah, enjoyed that. It's fun. Yeah.